was Baby Come Back by Player. You probably remember that song from the late 1970s. The operative line here is, Baby Come Back, you can blame it all on me. I was wrong and I just can't live without you. The Jewish mystic inside me would like to do a crazy reinterpretation of that line. That the singer is crying out to the Shekhinah, the feminine presence of God, saying, come back which would be totally appropriate for the days of awe, for this season in which we want to come back and we want God to come back as well. Okay, no, that is not what Baby Comeback is about. Let me be clear about that. I was just being a little outrageous. The operative piece here is the line, I was wrong. Today, we are going to talk about I was wrong. About six weeks ago, the Sunday New York Times devoted an entire section to that topic. I was wrong. The editors of the New York Times invited a cadre of their op-ed writers, Paul Krugman, Michelle Goldberg, David Brooks, Brett Stevens, Gail Collins, to describe how they had been wrong about what they had thought and about what they had written. Those were intellectual, social, and political confessions. It takes a lot of courage to say, I was wrong. That is the theme of this season. I was wrong. It's about imagining your soul as a laptop computer that has gone so awry that all you can do is hit Control-Alt-Delete. You have to reboot it so that it can start again. That's what this season is about. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, and I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, Rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. Today, I was wrong in a Jewish communal context. What were you wrong about? What ideas did you once have that you no longer have or that you've revisited or that you have reinterpreted or that you have simply discarded? What didn't you see? What didn't you get? What didn't you expect? Now, this is why this is so important. The Jewish community and Judaism, and all religions for that matter, can only survive and thrive if we are engaged in a perpetual loop of introspection, internal critique, reevaluation, and reimagination. In other words, this is very big. We have to do for ourselves as communal leaders and for the institutions that we lead and serve exactly what we would want individual Jews to do for themselves during this sacred season. And this is a message for everybody. You don't have to be Jewish to get this. We all live in that kind of confession, repentance loop. Whatever religion you are, this is for you. Let me introduce you to my guests, people who I really love. Rabbi Dan Freelander, one of the senior leaders of the Reform Movement, who has held many positions within the Reform Jewish world, and is most recently retired from his position as president of the World Union for Progressive Judaism. He is also 
a popular musician, along with his partner and friend for more than a half century, Cantor Jeff Klepper as Kolbeseder. We'll be hearing from them musically a little later. Rabbi Laura Geller, one of the first women rabbis in America, former Hillel director, director of the Los Angeles Office of the American Jewish Committee, and Rabbi Emerita of Temple Emanuel in Beverly Hills. She is a noted feminist thinker, a communal activist, who has recently and daringly turned her attention to the blessings and challenges of what it means to age Jewishly. Rabbi Sherry Hirsch, a rabbi and author who currently serves as the Chief Innovation Officer for American Jewish University in Los Angeles. She is focused on cultivating innovation that elevates individuals, communities, and institutions. She served as the first female rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. She has published two books with Random House. She has appeared on national media, and she continues to speak worldwide. And finally, Rabbi Karen Kadar, a veteran rabbi who has served the Reform Movement as a regional director for the Reform Movement and is the Rabbi Emerita of Congregation B'nai Joshua Beth Elohim in Glenview, Illinois, and also and perhaps primarily an author, a poet, a liturgist, and a never-ending source of inspiration for the reform movement and beyond. So, a hearty welcome to all my guests. Okay, let's do this. Danny, what did you get wrong? The list is very long, Jess. Uh, but today I want to talk about how uh, a bit of hubris. I was an innocent and thought that it was possible to hold our reformed Jewish denomination together while changing it radically. That was my, my fantasy, my hope, my work. I thought we could do it. But uh, I want to go over some things that I think we got a little wrong. Um, I, I started my, my uh, professional career working with the Reform Synagogue Movement in the 1970s. And we had inherited a movement that was really very strong and was growing. Uh, the baby boomers were storming the synagogues. Too many bar mitzvahs were taking place every week. Religious schools were growing. The movement was healthy financially and was held together by a very powerful rabbinic placement system, an amazing pension program, and a very strong youth and camping system that succeeded at creating future leaders for synagogues and for the movement. It was a system that held together. And to the outside world, people thought the reform movement was doing quite well. But we knew when we looked at what was happening in the Jewish world, we could no longer avoid addressing some of the larger social issues that Reform Judaism had not successfully addressed publicly. Those were issues like the role of women in leadership positions, the reality of intermarriage, homosexuality, the problematic and stale worship systems we had inherited, and a very problematic movement and congregational funding system. In other words, how we financially support congregations. All that was going on in the background while the movement seemed to be doing really, really well. So we invested in a very aggressive outreach program in opening the boundaries of the movement and trying to change the world's perception of Reform Judaism. We created uh, conferences and biennials that celebrated Jewish spirituality. We normalized new approaches to Reform Jewish worship very consciously. And we intentionally showcased diversity 
in reform ritual practice and removing boundaries of what was once considered normative or acceptable or not acceptable in reform Jewish practice. Think about uh, decorum in worship. Think about how many days of Rosh Hashanah reform congregation would observe or what we wore in synagogue, how the congregants dressed, what the rabbis wore, the role of the choir, the amount of Hebrew in the service. All those and we intentionally challenged and slowly changed each of those assumptions about Reform Judaism. So along the way between these outreach programs, these spirituality programs and these ritual change programs, we unintentionally undermined the conservative Jewish movement. We always seem to be addressing aggressively social issues that were already accepted by the majority of American Jews 10 to 15 years before most conservative movement institutions of them. Again, the issues being women in leadership roles, LGBT inclusion, conversion to Judaism, membership inclusion of intermarried families, and our worship systems in the congregation slowly began to change making Reform Judaism far more palatable to those who had grown up in Reform and conservative congregations, but who shared our social values or who had married non-Jews. So we were addressing all these changes, but at the same time, how do you hold the movement together? If every congregant is autonomous, if every rabbi is autonomous, if every congregation is autonomous, what's the unifying factor of the movement? So we did think that we could set up a new unifying canon of texts, similar to the way the Union Prayer Book had unified the movement for 80 years, or the Union Hymnal, that anytime you walked into a Reformed synagogue, there was a brand that you felt musically or liturgically. And so we published, I guess, 1980s versions of those 191890 books with New Sidor, with new language of a new centralized songbook in Sharei Shira, a new unifying songster for the camps in Shirenu, and eventually with the Mishkan Tfila in 2007. Now, notice that was only 15 years ago. It's also the year that the iPhone was invented. Computers were only had only been around for about 20 years when Mishkan Tfila were developed. Change started happening far more quickly in a way that we just could not control. And some of our congregations were very nimble and adapted to that change, and some just didn't know what to do, thinking it'll go back to the way it was. We were innocents. We were true believers. We thought we could change the Jewish world and still retain the strength of our movement and of our individual congregations. But we didn't understand how American society was coming to distrust or resent any kind of central authority and national organizations. We didn't take seriously the threat that Chabad presents to the whole notion of synagogue membership and how we fund congregations. We totally underestimated the influence of other religious and spiritual movements, in particular uh, renewal Judaism, and the impact that they would have on the lives of North American Jews. But perhaps most importantly, we failed to build the loyalty and commitment of our congregational professional leadership to this new form of this reform Judaism, if you will. Tensions and rivalries between affiliate professional groups and their heads and leaders broke the facade of movement unity, which people used to think that the reform synagogue movement 
was a really well-oiled together machine as opposed to many other movements within Judaism. But these tensions broke that facade. And the movement let autonomy run wild. You can no longer define what binds us together as reform. You can no longer walk into a synagogue and know, feel the branding that this is a reform Jewish community. Diversity is just not a unifying strategy. So in retrospect, I think we did change American Judaism for the better, but we were innocent and perhaps wrong to think that we could hold together a Jewish denomination as the powerhouse that it once was. Jews define themselves by what they see and what they choose to do, not by any underlying movement philosophies or ideologies. We're all autonomous and independent in the decisions we make, and we underestimated that when I started my professional life. Thank you, Dan. Does this resonate with anybody? Yes. Hi, Laura. So my question really is, is it important to hold a movement together at all? One could argue that we are in a post-denominational moment and it doesn't really matter whether a synagogue is reform or conservative, that all of our synagogues have been profoundly influenced, as you said, by uh, Jewish renewal. There's no North American experience that hasn't been shaped by that in, in some significant way. And we all know, particularly coming out of the pandemic, that the actual notion of what a synagogue is and do we still need synagogues, those kinds of questions are coming up. We've seen the recent study from uh, the Los Angeles Jewish community that millennials are actually very active Jewishly. They're just not doing it through institutions at all. They're doing it through a series of community uh, startups and uh, uh, opportunities to gather in different kinds of ways. Laura, you're asking absolutely the right question. The challenge that I have with that notion of what's going to build the future institutions. In other words, a, a single movement was successful in funding summer camps, in funding a rabbinical seminary, in publishing works, and in creating a shared language. Now, I, I agree we don't have a shared language right now. But it's the long term, who takes responsibility for helping those communities in trouble or for funding new communities or growing communities? Those are things that a centralized movement did. And I can't figure out where in the larger Jewish world that gets replaced or handled in the future. So, Laura, over to you. What did you get wrong? When I was ordained in 1976, the third woman in the reform movement, I believe that feminism would change the Jewish world. And in some ways it did. Women in the 70s learned through consciousness raising groups that the personal was political. And we brought the skills that had been honed in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement into our Jewish community. Some of us became rabbis. Others were scholars who began to look at issues of Jewish law through a feminist lens. We rabbis and other Jewish feminists came to believe that our experience was Jewish experience, even though our patriarchal tradition didn't recognize it, and our voices had never been on the pages of commentary or heard from the Bima. In the early 70s, there was an explosion of new rituals that centered on women's experience, covenant ceremonies for girls, ceremonies for miscarriage, for abortion, for hysterectomies, for becoming an elder or a crone. I thought that the ordination of women would reshape Jewish institutions, particularly synagogues. 
that women rabbis would change the model of relationships between professionals with more collaboration and less hierarchy. And I believe that women rabbis and the women and men who supported us would change the face of American Judaism by making it more exclusive, by bringing into the center other groups that had been on the margins, just as women had been, and that that would lead us to a bigger tent. Now, some of that has actually happened. But the truth is, it's been over 50 years. This is the 50th anniversary of the ordination of the American woman rabbi, and we're still in the wilderness. I want to remind everybody that it only took our ancestors 40 years to make it to the promised land. We still have a long way to go. And truthfully, I never could have imagined the impact of women rabbis sharing their stories of harassment, of being victims of sexual boundary violations, and of the abuse that I and so many of my colleagues suffered at the hands of powerful men or the complicity of so many of our colleagues who didn't know how to intervene or were afraid to try. I also thought that women rabbis would always be feminists and would understand that even when there are so many women rabbis as there are now, that we would still need a women's rabbinic network for women to have a safe place to tell these stories and to find mentoring that could help them grow. But I got that wrong too. Many of our younger colleagues just don't get it. They don't understand that we're all standing on the shoulders of the ones who came before us. The women of Reform Judaism, who used to be called the National Federation of Temple Sisterhood, who pushed for the ordination of women from 1920 on, the year that women's suffrage was ratified. It's been a fight that's been going on for a very long time. And I never believed that I would see the ordination of Orthodox women rabbis or a seminary that would ordain them. Thankfully, I was wrong about that when Sarah Hurwitz in 2009 became the first rabbah or maharat, which is an acronym for the Hebrew words that mean female leader of Jewish law, spirituality, and Torah. Since then, 48 women have been ordained. Amazing. I never believed that that would happen in my lifetime. But I wasn't wrong that they would face fierce opposition. Another thing I got wrong was that Haredi Judaism would never flourish in North America. I was so wrong about that. All we need to do is to uh, pay attention to this past Sunday's New York Times expose about the Haredi presence in Brooklyn and in Rockland counties. And I certainly couldn't have imagined the power they would have to influence public funding for schools that don't educate them to live in the contemporary world, which effectively makes them prisoners to a lifestyle that I thought would fade away. And I got wrong that the ongoing courageous struggle to create the opportunity for women to pray as a group at the Western Wall, the Kotel, for women to have access to a Torah scroll there, to pray with Talis and Tefillin, for women to be protected from the abuse and disruption of yeshiva girls who are bused to the Kotel, to, to the Kotel on Rosh Chodesh every new month. I believe that that would be over by now. It's been more than 30 years of monthly Rosh Chodesh gathering, and we're still fighting about that. And among the other things I got wrong was my initial skepticism that 
Jewish spiritual practice could be enriched and deepened by opening ourselves to teachings of mindfulness, of meditation, and of Buddhism. I had the privilege of studying meditation through the Institute for Jewish Spirituality with Sylvia Borstein, a very Jewish grandmother who's also an important Buddhist teacher. The IJS has been part of the reintroduction of neo-Hasidic teachings and Kabbalah into the lives of rabbis and other Jewish professionals. My work as a rabbi, and even more important, my spiritual practice as a Jew, has been transformed and enriched through the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. So yes, I was wrong about a lot of things, but I'm still growing and changing. You know, when you spoke, uh, Laura, about what's happening with Haredi Judaism and having just written about this in Martini Judaism, about the scandal of Haredi schools, I have to say that much of this has been a visceral and visual response to the Shoah, that these lives could come back, that these villages would be resurrected. But I just don't believe, cannot believe, and will not believe that this is the kind of life that the survivors would have wanted for their children or for their grandchildren. Yes, Sherry. I just really wanted to echo what Rabbi Geller said, or Laura, who has always been a rabbi to me, as she was one of the original women that fought to become a rabbi. I cannot believe how long it's taken for women to become a voice in any movement. When I went to rabbinical school and I stand on Laura and Karen's shoulders, I truly believed that if we were just good, actually, if we were a little better than the men, that that would be sufficient and everybody would welcome us with open arms and we would be embraced and it would be just clear oh, right, we've ignored 50% of the Jewish population. We're now welcoming them in. And of course, we welcome this opportunity. And it's been anything but, and I am floored by it. So I'm so glad, Laura, that you brought that up because as a woman now for 25 years that stands truly on the first generation women rabbis and now women standing on my shoulders, I cannot believe it. Amen. You know what's really scandalous? What's really scandalous is how few large federations are being run by women and how that glass ceiling is still intact. But Jeff, there's so much about that. I mean, the Rabinet is not built for a woman's multiple balancing act that she has to do, even in, quote, an egalitarian society. So those jobs are not appealing. They're just not. I get it. And yet I do believe we did change things. We're not quite as hierarchical anymore. We understand consensus. That's very much a female um, contribution into the, into the male hierarchical world. There is a commanding voice that is still ideological and at once gentle and compassionate. Things have changed and we are still fighting and it is still outrageous that we have to. Up until the very end of my time at my congregation, recently retired, I was fighting for position and a voice. And yet, there I was. I have managed to be any place that I actually really wanted to go. I know it's not true for all of our female colleagues, but things have changed. Things have changed and we have changed. We'll be right back in a few minutes. Stick around. Adonai 
Center, Rabbi Dan Freelander and Cantor Jeff Klepper with a little bit of their song, Hashivenu, Bring Us Back, God. Bring us back to the way that we're supposed to be. And we are back. Welcome back to Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, and I am your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, and I serve Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. We have been talking about I was wrong. I have to tell you something very funny. When you go on the New York Times website and you find the I was wrong feature, this is so funny and so telling. The feature is animated in such a way that even as you're reading it, there's an invisible hand that is erasing everything that you're reading. It's really very funny. It's actually also disconcerting. It's wild and it's appropriate because that is one of the inner yearnings of Yom Kippur. Kippur comes from the word kapar, which means to erase or to cover over. That's what we want to do. We want to erase what we got wrong and rewrite and find a way of making it better. So we've heard from Rabbi Dan Freelander. We've heard from Rabbi Laura Geller, Rabbi Sherry Hirsch. Sherry, what did you get wrong or what did you not see coming? Well, Jeff, so nice to be here and so honored to be with such esteemed colleagues. Love you, Danny and Karen and Laura. What I got wrong so much, but what I didn't anticipate, something very particular. In 2018, a group of young people walked off a birthright trip. I don't know if you remember this, but birthright was established over 20 years ago to give kids a free trip to Israel. You could be even remotely Jewish. You could be, I feel Judaism in my heart, and it was established that you could go to Israel. And in 2018, these, I believe, six kids walked off the trip protesting what they considered was birthright's failure to adequately address the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. And I remember being furious. First of all, Forget that they took the money, forget that they knew the agenda, forget that they went to Israel. But what I couldn't believe is that when I was a kid, Jeff, my parents were worried that I would go to Israel and I would become religious. I would go to Israel and I wouldn't come home because I would be so zealous. I'd be so excited and so moved by observant Judaism that I wouldn't come home. It never, ever, ever occurred to me that we would raise children, that we would talk about everything about how to do tikkun olam and that we were slaves in Egypt and that we should oppose oppression and that we would talk to our children about equality and justice and all of our teaching would backfire. That they would interpret that as that we should be anti-Israel. 
that Israel is an apartheid state. It never, ever occurred to me that we would be raising children with the values of Judaism that would then turn their back on Israel. Never occurred to me. I always thought that Israel was central to the Jewish people and that no Jew who didn't value what it meant to be Jewish wouldn't see the central part of what Israel means to being Jewish. And the fact now that parents come to see me as a rabbi all the time and say, what did I do wrong? Because I raised my children to be caring for the needy, to be taking care of the less fortunate. And now they're social justice heroes that are anti-Zionist in tears. I deal with that all the time. And I live in fear of it. The way my parents lived in fear of me becoming uber Jew, I live in fear of raising my four children to be anti-Zionist. And everywhere around them is promulgating this message. So what did I get wrong? That we would even have to confront this issue. That Israel would be a conversation that's negotiable on the table. That our children, our Jewish children, would think that Israel is not central to being a Jew. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart every day. And that it's not a home, that they don't see it as their home because Israel is the Jewish home. And I cannot believe that they don't see it that way. And that that is what we are facing now. And I'm terrified of what the slippery slope and where it's leading to. That went straight to my gut. How did this happen? And why do why do some young people feel this way? What, what compels them to feel this way? And I'm thinking about what compelled our progenitors in the reform movement in the 1890s to disdain Zionism so strongly. What they wanted to become were true Americans in a social class. I'm starting to wonder if that's not exactly what's going on with my own adult children who are very involved in social causes and want acceptance within the philosophical confines of those social movements. And they can't fit Israel into that. Bingo. Laura, over to you. I think there's another thing that we need to look at, which is how we teach about Israel. We teach about Israel, at least in religious schools and perhaps in day schools, that there was a land without a people for people without a land and the fullness of the experience of the creation of Israel and the truth of two peoples who have stories about what this land means. We didn't teach it. And so when kids come to Israel and they see the complications, you know, they feel that they have been misled. So I think that there's really an issue about how we teach about Israel. And I also think it's really important that the Jewish community make space for people to say Israel is important and I still am critical of policies of the government of Israel. And it's still problematic to say that. You still can be labeled anti-Semitic if you are being critical of certain policies of the government of Israel. And I think that's part of the problem. Karen, then Sherry. You know, it goes back to what Danny said at the beginning of this podcast. If we're post-denominational, do we have to be post-ideological? We should stand for something. And one of the foundations of Jewish identity should be the love of Israel and the land. And the separation, Laura, absolutely, of the ideal 
of Israel from the particular temporal politics of the day and of the moment, just as we tend to do here in this country, where we sometimes are dismayed with the politics, but not dismayed with the promise of America. I would just add, Jeff, Laura, ding, 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 that we didn't teach a nuanced, articulate approach to Israel. We taught a very monolithic approach, and our children are reacting to that because they are bombarded by information. They're so much smarter than we were. I mean, we lived in a little small, you know, shtetl, so to speak, of information, and they are smart, and they needed a much more nuanced understanding. I fully take responsibility. And I I have four children that I'm very focused on a very nuanced conversation about Israel, where we have open dialogue, because I want them to be Zionist that can critique Judaism, but that aren't going to walk out of a birthright trip, for God's sakes. And finally, Rabbi Karen Kadar. Karen, teach us. What did I get wrong? I'm so grateful to be here. And uh, I echo you, Sherry. Uh, It's just such a wonderful group of people. And Jeffrey, I love this podcast. And what did I get wrong? Again, I join all of you by saying so much. But to me, what stands out right in this particular moment is that I truly, truly believed for the first several decades of my rabbinate, I was ordained in 1985, that to serve the Jewish people, I best served by officiating at the weddings of two Jews and not do interfaith marriage. And I believe that with all my heart. And what I would say to the Christians among us is that, you know, I'm not a justice of the peace. I'm a rabbi. And so I hold the sacred trust of marriage between two Jewish people. And then I became a congregational rabbi. And in this congregation, I had many Christians And the Christians taught me, the Christians among us that were faithful members of the congregation, they taught me that um, they were as committed and oftentimes more committed than their Jewish spouse. For instance, the Christian woman, the wife, would say to the man in my office in great dismay, listen, honey, this is your religion. And I think our children need to get religion. But if you're not going to show up here, then I'm taking them elsewhere. And he would look at me and I'd say, yeah, you need to bring them to synagogue. Or the Christian man would say, don't you people ever talk about God? What happened to God? I said, well, you know, we're a little angry at God after the Holocaust. We talk. Well, I want to pray and talk about God and drag the wife to the synagogue. And then I observed that my beautiful two Jewish couples, the couple of the of two Jews, would marry and then disappear and were not at all contributing to the continuity of the Jewish people. And then I understood that it was my obligation, and I apologized publicly to my congregation for getting this wrong as I wrote a responso, that it was my obligation to open the door in love to open the door in generosity and to bring in our midst all those people who wanted to make sacred their union and become participants in Jewish life, building our synagogue. So I got that wrong. And I have said I'm sorry over and over again and continue to say I'm sorry. There was a lot of healing that needed to happen for decades of saying no to the love of two beautiful people. 
who's moved to talk about that? So I have a similar experience. For the first half of my career, I would not officiate at uh, intermarriages because I believed that the role of the rabbi was to create Jewish marriages. But when I became a congregational rabbi and I saw how many non-Jewish fellow travelers were in the congregation, that my role as a rabbi wasn't to create Jewish marriages, was, but rather to facilitate Jewish families. And these families were Jewish families, even though one of them was not officially Jewish. And that was a very significant turning point for me. The other thing that I think is really true, and you mentioned it, is that one of the many gifts of opening the tent to include interfaith families is the conversation about spirituality has changed completely. It is absolutely true that our communities are more open about talking about God because those questions and those inclinations have come from people who bring other religious traditions into our community. So that's been a gift that I would not have predicted. It's more than the creation of Jewish families. It's the opening up of the Jewish conversation to include spirituality and um, God talk, which wasn't part of the way I was trained as a, as a rabbi. I, I truly believe that the whole um, grounding in the spirit that has happened in the last couple of decades came from three sources. And I believe that one of those sources was women in the rabbinate. One of those sources was the camp movement that managed to get a spirit around prayer. And one of the sources were the non-Jew in our midst that demanded God talk and took prayer very, very seriously. Would anyone mind if I offer what I got wrong? It's very similar to what Karen got wrong. For many years, I did not perform same-sex marriage ceremonies. I had been extremely committed to civil rights for LGBTQ people. I had been extremely committed to civil unions for LGBTQ people. But I had been part of the responsa committee of the reform movement that researched the topic and had come to the conclusion that I had already come to, which was an embrace of those secular values, but a rejection of a ritual response. I was always in favor of supporting my reform colleagues, reconstructionist colleagues, and now I believe many conservative colleagues who have taken different positions and certainly renewal colleagues. And I was afraid, I will confess to you, that I was concerned about how this would play in the larger Jewish world and in Israel. I now confess to you, years later, that my fears of negative blowback from the rest of the Jewish world and from Israel were unwarranted. I also came to understand that my own position was unwarranted. It began with a pastoral recognition that a certain percentage of the young people in my congregations were LGBTQ. In fact, in my current congregation at Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida, we have many such kids. And with the support financially of the Palm Beach County Jewish Federation, we've created a special program for them, an outreach program for kids who are struggling and want a safe place. I also came to understand something, maybe too late, 
that if a kid approached me to perform a ceremony for them, they would view my refusal as a personal stab against them and their personhood, and that I would become a potential photograph in their scrapbook of why I left the Jewish community. I was wrong. I could not be that person and I would not be that rabbi. And when I combined that with the political realization that LGBTQ people and especially kids are in danger in this country and in my state of Florida, I had no choice. I had to decide to do such ceremonies and I will do so with enthusiasm. All I can say is that I regret my earlier position and I regret that I hurt friends and colleagues. And I can only pray that my current position serves as a partial teshuva for what had been a mistake, a mistake that was rooted in my concern for Jewish texts and positions, but nevertheless, a position that is no longer tenable and that was, I believe, nevertheless wrong. Dan? I'm listening to this part of the conversation and I I think back to the response that we had internally and within the larger Jewish world to patrilineality. And it was a radical step. It was really redefining who was a Jew, that Judaism is less about blood and, and DNA and more about personal choice and action. And uh, we were able to get there as a movement and to put up with the pushback and blowback from other parts of the Jewish community on lineage, but we weren't on intermarriage. It took us 30 years longer on, on intermarriage to get there. And they're really the same issue. It's how one chooses to live, not what one's lineage is. Last thoughts, anyone? I'm so grateful for the opportunity to to turn and to be agile and to grow and to develop and to, without fear of retribution, walk humbly into the future as we look for the way to, to make our world softer and kinder and more grounded in principles and more grounded in belief. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to have the ability to say, I'm sorry, and to celebrate the fact that we can still move into the future strong and positive. I love that getting it wrong and admitting you're wrong and saying you're sorry is absolutely about getting it right. So thank you all for getting it right today in that you're getting it so wrong, including myself. And I would want to suggest that the, what you found amusing in the uh, way the article in the New York Times was presented with the erasing, that it's not about erasing. It's about facing, acknowledging, and understanding that people change. But we are who we are because of the choices we've made along the way. And as we look back, while we might have got some of them wrong, they still are part of, of the shaping of who we are. And we bring that with us as we begin a new year. You know, you're all reminding me of a very famous story about the late rabbi and scholar Arthur Hertzberg. When he gave his senior sermon at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, it would have been in the 1940s, Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan, who was still on the faculty, got up and at sermon critique lambasted him, tore him apart. And Arthur said, 
but, 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 but Rabbi Kaplan, you yourself said this two weeks ago, and Kaplan said, ha, huh, but Arthur, I've changed since then. I've changed since then. With thanks to our guests, Rabbi Dan Freelander, Rabbi Laura Geller, Rabbi Sherry Hirsch, Rabbi Karen Kadar, with gratitude to our engineer, Jay Woodward, this has been Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. This is the podcast. I invite you to follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism, on religionnews.com. We would so love to grow this community of listeners. So if you have enjoyed this, we would totally appreciate it. Leave us a five-star review on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To all of our Jewish friends, Shana Tova Umetuka, good and sweet year. To friends of all faiths, may this be a time of renewal wherever you are and whoever you are. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.